mean by amazing, not saying like, wow, that's so cool. I'm saying like, whoa, that's what it says. And um, we're going to be challenged in our faith and challenged to know what we believe. And, um, and, and Christians, we need to know what we believe. That's why we take a lot of painstaking time in our fellowship to, to really teach people the word, to make you aware of what's going on. Not because I like to shock people, but because we need to be aware of what's going on. And being forewarned is being, is being ready to know what's at stake. And to, you see things like that and you go, okay, what do I do? Well, come to prayer meetings. Come to Bible studies. Let's get us equipped. Let's get together. Let's meet with the home groups that we have. And um, because the only thing that will spare you in these days is righteousness. Righteousness is the only thing that will spare you from this. Not gold, not money, not weapons, not guns. I know we're all fond of everything, one of those things. But they will not help at some point. Those have built-in failures because they're fallen things. But righteousness, the book of Zephaniah says, righteousness will save you. The righteousness of Jesus will spare you in that day. Your faith will be the most precious, most important thing you have. And, and you may not know it now. You go, man, I just have a little bit of faith. Man, it is gold in these days. It is completely gold. Um, and the more you grow in it, the more you have. The more you hear the word, the more faith comes by hearing. So um, don't neglect those things. So I'm sorry, I've been talking way too much. You let me know when, Sergio, because we'll be here by 10. If, if, okay. Countdown. Oh, I can keep. Oh. My goodness. You know, I would have said something else. Oh, I thought you said we're good. Like, oh, you're giving me time. All right, Hosea chapter 10. Sorry about that. Um, that's how much I follow directions. Hosea chapter 10. I need to put it up. There it is. Hosea chapter 10. Out of all the chapters in Hosea, this is by far one of the most interesting ones. I'm going to reset this and play it so I can get a new timer. There it is. Hosea chapter 10. It's time to seek the Lord. It's the name of this message. It's time to seek the Lord. And based on what we saw and we just endured for the last 40 minutes, you would say, yes, I need to seek the Lord now. And it may be a point in your life where... Um, Maybe you withdrew from the Lord. Maybe you've been indifferent about Christ and, and the Word of God. And uh, seeing things like this may go, man, I need to take my faith more serious. And in a way, it's good that we think that way because seeing things that we just saw and, and, and progressively worse things will happen, um, it makes us understand that this is, this is a spiritual battle. Paul told us it's a spiritual battle. And spiritual battles need to be fought with spiritual armor. And spiritual armor can only be found in the person of Jesus. He is our armor. He is the armor of God that we put on. Put on Christ, you put on his armor. Uh, but chapter 10 tells us about a society that has gone similar to our society, has gone further and further away from the Lord. And the book of Hosea, which introduces the last 12 of the minor, the minor prophets are the 12. They're literally in the, in the Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible, they're called the 12. And everybody knows what the 12 are. The 12, the last uh, books in the Bible and the Old Testament are the minor prophets. And reading them, it's challenging. 
I, I, I will be very honest with you. They're challenging to me. I pray they're challenging to you because they're very much uh, a voice, a people like Hosea who challenge his generation to come back to the Lord. And that's not easy to do because you're unpopular. You will be a nagging voice. You will be the one that is hated. It will be a pebble in the shoe of everybody. And Hosea yet had to go with a message that he learned basically not by a school book or in school, but by living out his life. He was married to a harlot. He was married to a sexually moral woman. And she left him several times. And two of his kids, if not one of them for sure, was questionable whether it was his or not. And he had to live with the pain of infidelity. And she kept going away to her other lovers, and, and he kept bringing her back because God says, love her back, bring her back, restore her back. And it must have been difficult. We can't divorce the fact that he endured the pain of infidelity. But once he understood the pain of infidelity, he can, he can go and have a message. Because now God says, now I can use you. Now you can say what I feel. God is the husband. He was married to Israel. He's married to Israel. And there was supposed to be a faithful people, a faithful people that had one God who loved them, took care of them, and all they had to do be obedient and be faithful to what they knew, which was God's word. And they had leaders and prophets, and the prophets were there to turn him back to God. And Hosea comes at a point where the northern kingdom has split with the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom of Israel is gone. They have gone into idolatry, immorality, just like a woman in adultery, just like somebody who's gone and being unfaithful to their spouse, and there's no turning back. And the pain of that infidelity made Hosea's message even more intense because his message is not for them, but it's also for us. We, too, are called the people of God. We, too, are called the bride of, uh, of Christ. Just like Israel was the wife of Yahweh, the, the wife of, uh, of God, we're called the bride of Christ. And we're called to be faithful, and we're called to put away our lovers. In the, in the case of Israel, they had the golden calves, and they got these other idols. Um, we don't have those specific ones, but the Bible tells us to get away from the world. Do not love the world. And literally, in the book of James, it says that you need to stop having adultery with the world. Like when you go into the world, and what I mean by the world is not the earth. What I mean by the world is the way the world thinks and the values of the world and what it actually lifts up and what it actually puts down and what it emphasizes. And Christians get caught up in the world. There's people from this fellowship that don't come here anymore because they got caught up in the world. And that's the warning of, to believers. It warns them about the world. Don't love the world, the things of the world. Um, fellowship or friendship with the world is enmity and uh, you become an enemy of God, literally what it says. And Israel went that way because they had leadership that failed them. And so this is an important point. When we read Hosea like this, he's not talking to us about the president of the United States or the Senate or the, uh, or the congressman. He's talking to Israel, but as an application, he's talking to the church, talking to the people of God, the kings of Israel, the princes of Israel, the, the government of Israel was a theocracy, meaning that they were supposed to be ruled by God. There's no theocracy in the world today. 
in a sense of a government that is Christian. There's none. There's never been one. There's a Christian fellowship, a Christian church that is governed by the Lord. And so it applies all the things about the state of Israel in the Old Testament, the kings, the prophets, all those applies to the church primarily. They're parallels to the world. They're parallels to nations who have gone astray uh, that once had a Christian background like our country, like England, like Israel. They're parallels to the government when you can say to the government that they're acting in an unjust manner, that they're acting wickedly, that they're promoting sin and things like that. But they're only parallels. A prophet is always sent to people, to the people of God. So Hosea was sent to the people of God. If God is going to send the prophet, he's going to send it to the church in the last days. He's not going to send it to the United States or England or Australia. He's going to send it to the church of Jesus because that's where it begins. The Apostle Peter says, if there needs to be correction and judgment, it'll start at the White House. No. The Kremlin, the Knesset, where does it start? The house of the Lord, which he says, you are the rock. You are the part of the building. You're part of what makes up the house of God, a holy house. And so when we read this, we have to think about it in a sense that leaders have failed Israel. The church has also has leaders that failed them. And Israel had this idolatry about power uh, that they, they sought themselves to to, to make all these connections, all these, uh, all, all these covenants with all these other nations and set up this treaty for peace. And it never brought them peace. It actually was what brought the judgment of God. And they also corrupted the worship of God. They thought because they had the right name and they had the right sacrifices that it would be enough to convince a holy God that their sins didn't matter and the way they lived, it didn't matter as long as they kept doing the sacrifices, and the worship of God. As long as that kept going, they were an automatic pilot. And God said, no, don't bring those things. In fact, in Isaiah, he says he hated them. It's strong language from God, isn't it? You ever take it like that? Like, man, God is pretty serious about this. And he absolutely is. He is completely serious. God is serious about our sins. God is serious about our holiness. God is more concerned with our holiness and getting away from sin that he is with the world. And that's something that you have to really, really consider and think about it. God is more concerned about our holiness and getting away from sin than he is concerned with the world or the governments of the world. Now, he's concerned about those, and he has a plan, and he's working it out, all things. He's working everything according to his counsel. But he's also concerned, and more concerned will be my take, for your holiness and my sin and getting away from it than he is anything else. Because we're his people. We call his name. We represent him. He wants a people that reflect him. And, and it's so Israel got to the point where it was time to seek the Lord. Now let's go to verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine. This is chapter 10. That produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more the altars are made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Now this is something that we see in the scriptures quite a bit about the, the vineyard and the vines. And, and those were always symbols of prosperity, always symbols of good things. And the Bible says that Israel was the vineyard of God. And actually, uh, uh, Jesus used that very parallel or the parable from Isaiah chapter 5 to tell us that the vineyard was given over to the leaders. Israel was to produce fruit for the owner. 
and God wanted the fruit for himself. But what did they do? They got the fruit for themselves. They kept the fruit for themselves, and they never brought good fruit. God was looking for fruit, just like Jesus to the fig tree. He was looking for fruit, and he got nothing. He got nothing, and therefore the fig tree was cursed. Remember that, that account? So Israel becomes this prosperous nation who the more they got into, this, into their activities, the more they produced. They actually got even wealthier. Uh, it says in the kings that Jeroboam, which is one of the kings, um, Jeroboam II, I should say, he expanded the borders. Now, this is a little bit before Hosea, but it, it, um, it correlates to Hosea's time. It was a time of great prosperity. But the Bible says that the more they got richer, the more the land that they grew, the more the vines that they had, the better they made their sacred pillars. They actually got more involved in paganism. They actually got more involved into idolatry. And it's one of those things that we can correlate to this. We live in probably the most prosperous nation in the world. Probably. Yes. All things considered per capita, you are extremely wealthy, no matter if you're the poorest one here. Um, we are extremely wealthy. And so we can correlate to this. Uh, the danger for prosperity is this. The more you prosper, human nature, the more we tend to forget the Lord. Um, if we had trials and tribulations and difficulty, our prayer meeting would be packed. But it's not because we live very comfortably. We have a good system of economy, at least seemingly. Um, and so America doesn't need God because, hey, the stock market is doing really well. The housing market is doing really well. Uh, we don't really think that things are better going to happen. So I think we're okay. We got a job. We have our income and things like that. And the more Israel became wealthy, the more they forgot the Lord. In fact, Jesus told us this. In the, in, in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, we're told that Jesus uh, chastised his generation. And he says, you can't serve two masters because you can't serve God and money, success, careers, things like that. Uh, nothing wrong with them, but you can't serve it. You can't serve them. And it actually says, if you try to do that, if you try to hold on to both, um, it's like loving one and hating the other. It says you can't do both. And literally the word hate there is to minimize the other. It, it's, it's not like we think of hate like an emotion, but in the Bible, hate is not necessarily an emotion. It's, it's, it's dealing or correlating to something or relating to something. So Jesus was saying is that you're going to deal with one and be totally into this, and then minimize the other one. And we see people in the church, in our world, in our society, where success comes and they, they forget the Lord. They, 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 they try to do both, but they minimize Christ. Many times that's what happens. They don't try to minimize wealth. They try to minimize Christ. And Jesus says, you can't do that. It'll cost you. It'll cost you. And that, so Israel became that. It became exactly what Jesus said is that they became more involved into their harlotry. Now, this is in Tel Dan. This is, you go up northern Israel. This is Tel Dan. This is the hill of Dan. It's there today. You can get on a plane. You can go there. You don't believe me. And um, this is literally the place where they worship the golden calf. So that's archaeological evidence. This is Hosea's 100% right. We have archaeological evidence. So you can literally see the priest bowing down at these golden calves. And they had one 
in Bethel and one in Dan. This is where the, Dan, the one in Dan uh, was located. You can go today, they give you a tour, they say this is the high places, the groves, this is where it was, this is what the temple would have looked like, and the pedestal, and you can see the golden calf right on top, and the people of God will be bowing down to these golden calves and saying, this is our God, this is our God, he brought us out of Egypt. Well, you think about that and you go, how can somebody think that that is God? But you see the example all the time. People that are convinced that that's of God and has nothing to do with God. Now, it says... In verse 2, their hearts is faithless. Literally, the word is divided. Faithless, divided. And um, it, it's, it's another word can be translated slippery, slippery or smooth. Their heart is smooth or slippery. And, and, and you say, well, what, how does that mean faithless? How do they translate that word faithless? The idea is that it's, it's a divided heart because there's nothing. You ever known somebody who's very smooth in their words? They're politicians, right? They're very good at saying things. Or, you know, pastors who are very eloquent and they could say just the right things, but they don't say anything. They just say a lot of things, but they don't really say anything. You're like, what'd you get out of it? I have no idea, but he talked for an hour and a half. Or hopefully it's not me, but it's just, you know, like, it, so it's the, the idea that they don't stand for anything. They just don't stand for anything. You ask them a question, well, this and that and that, the other, and and they didn't ever answer the question. Israel had all these loyalties to everybody except the loyalty to God. Now, God doesn't want a loyalty that's divided. He doesn't want to be one out of ten. He wants to be one out of one. The loyalty to God is supreme. It's, it's the ultimate loyalty. It's the ultimate priority. Now, in our world, the ultimate priority is self, right? That's the, that's the religion of America. Selfism. Selfism is the religion that everybody bows down to, and I'm not including just us here, but everybody. You know, who's the ultimate loyalty to? Self. Who's going to take care of you? Self. What's in it for? Me, right? That's the ultimate loyalty, and that's the world, and that's adopted by Christianity. The ultimate loyalty is to the Lord, even if it costs. See, that's one thing that it's hard to imagine, right? Even if it's inconvenient. Oh, man. Not now, Lord. Really? <laughs> Even if it costs money, time. Who wants to do that? Ultimate loyalty. Ultimate priority. And they must bear their guilt, God says. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Those pillars were gone. They're now a ruin a ruinous heap. They're now just a, a, an archaeological digging place. Can you imagine? At the time of Jose, this was it. This was the happening place. This was the happening place to worship. I mean, did you go up to Dan? Oh, man, it was awesome. Did you go up to Bethel? Oh, man, it was great. Now we look at this and we go, what a piece of junk that is. It's, it's heap. It's a ruinous thing. It's just trash. And yet it was all that people went into. They devoted so much of their time and money and effort for what? Absolutely nothing. God brought it down. There's never anything good that comes out when we leave the Lord and we go for something else. Nothing ever good. No one ever comes back and says it was a great time. It's always wounds and hurts and pains and relationships that are broken. And God says, I'm going to destroy it. The Lord broken down. Verse 3, surely now we will, they will say, we have no king. 
for we do not fear the Lord. As for the king, what could he do for us? So back again, just a historical, just not to bore you, but uh, six kings in 30 years. Read 2 Kings chapter 15, and you'll get the picture. So I won't read it, but you can get it. 2 Kings chapter six, uh, 15, the whole chapter, tells us of the destruction of Israel by Assyria. Well, it tells us that they had six kings. Five of them were killed by the next king. <laughs> Only one guy made it. Uh, and then the last one was taken into captivity, Hoshea. But all of them, all of them were actually killed, except for one, by the next successor. So can you imagine the United States having, you know, I know people are you know, playing this game about killing Trump and all this stuff, but can you imagine the kind of activities that will be around in society if one president after another was killed, boom, 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 um, and, and trying to keep power? It was like that in Israel. Now, it was much different because it was a theocracy. The king had to have a relationship with God like David did, right? So that's why it's different than America. Um, we would say kings and priests, and these guys would have been like pastors, like leaders, like elders. And um, they have gone into, they had no king because the Lord was to be their king. But look what the reason why. For we do not fear the Lord. Now, there's a lot of lack of fear of the Lord in the world, in their country. But the most troubling part is they do not fear the Lord in the church. That's gone. You can't talk about that because people get really uncomfortable because it's sort of been deleted from our vocabulary that we have to fear the Lord. And what that means is that we revere the Lord in such a way that he is God, he's, he's powerful, and he can do anything. I mean, he can literally take our lives today if he wanted to. You ever thought about that? That if, if the Lord wanted to take your life today, he could? And there's no one's going to tell him, wait, or hold on, I didn't get to do that, or nothing like that. We are completely reliant on his grace and his mercy to give us the next breath. Completely. That alone sends chills down my spine <laughs> and my stomach doesn't feel well because I realize I am not in control of my life. I have semblances of control, like I can make decisions, of course, but ultimately God's sovereign over my life. He can do what he wants. And that can either make you really, really uncomfortable or it can really bring a lot of comfort to you because you can just trust in the Lord and you know he's going to take care of you. But it's difficult to realize that that's the fear of the Lord, that sin is not something that he winks at. Sin is not something that he just goes, well, okay, I know, I know you. I know, I know your temper. I know your habituality of lies and your proclivities to sin. I know all that, so don't worry about it. Between me and you, don't worry about it. God doesn't talk like that. He doesn't talk like me. He, doesn't, he does not believe the things that I would believe in in terms of any kind of judgments and things like that. God is totally different. I know what he believes, and I, I need to agree with it. But when it comes to sin, he doesn't wink at it. He's patient. He's very loving and very forgiving. But he doesn't tolerate it. And so I can't disguise his, his, uh, his patience with his condone, condole, uh, condoning it. He has to judge sin. Now, what Christians forget a lot of the times is the sin that we so easily justify was paid by Jesus. 
was he was nailed for that sin. He was nailed to the cross for that sin. And uh, so easily we trivialize it, but it actually cost Jesus his life. And the fear of the Lord is, like, I can't sin against a God who doesn't tolerate sin. It's a very difficult thing for Christians to realize that. We're saved by grace through faith, yes, but it was at a price. And that price is that we're to submit to Jesus and his calling for us to be holy, unless he is holy. But let's continue. Now, it says in verse 4, they speak mere words with worthless oaths. They make covenants and judgments sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beth-Avon. Indeed, its people will mourn for it. Literally, what it's saying is that they, they speak empty words and they make decisions. But their decisions are like poison. Decisions are like poisonous weeds in the furrow. Like if, if you're a farmer, you never want to plant Poison weeds with your food crops. Never. That's like a no-no, right? That's easy. Well, Israel was supposed to be like this vineyard, this, this agricultural loving place. Remember, it was a land of milk and honey. It was a beautiful area of vineyards and fields. And God says, you have made him basically poison. Not only would it kill you, but it will kill others. And those were the leaders of Israel. Those were the people of Israel. Now, verse 5 says, the inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beth-Avon. Now, this is the calf. These are the two golden calves. This one's in Bethel, idolatrous place. And Dan, up in the north, another idolatrous place. And the inhabitants of Samaria are going to fear. Why? Because the calf of Beth-Avon. Now, we've done this quite a bit of times already because we're already in chapter 10, but Beth-Avon was another name for Bethel, the southern one, the bottom one. That was the name of it. And it literally means the house of, house of wickedness. House of wickedness. Now, Bethel's a beautiful name. It means the house of God. Beth-el, the house of God. They turn it into the house of wickedness because in that place was a place of idolatry, and there was more than that. Uh, I won't get into all the things that they did, but if you can imagine an orgy at the worship centers of these places, and that's what they did every single day, calling on God. How can God tolerate that? Well, I'm glad he's patient with me too. How can God tolerate my sin? But this is, this, is, this is crazy. This is the people of God worshiping another God. Yeah, but they called it God. They called it Yahweh. And they thought they were actually doing well. Indeed, its people were mourned for it. And the idolatrous priests would cry out for it over its glory since it has departed. Now, this is interesting because... It's saying that the calf is going to go away. Assyria's coming. It's going to take it away, and they're going to weep over the fact that the calf is no longer there. Now, when God's, the glory will leave, basically. The glory of that fake glory of that calf is going to go into Assyria. It's going to go into captivity, and they're going to cry about it. But it's, it's, it's a play on words, because remember when Samuel had the Ark of the Covenant... And Eli was the priest, and his two sons were basically sons of hell, literally, sons of Belial, sons of, they were doing all kinds of immoral acts, and he wouldn't correct his sons. And, and God said through Samuel, your, your sons are going to die. This is, God's had enough. You're, you're letting your sons basically sleep around, and yet they're the priest, and steal, and rob, and they misrepresent God completely. And you don't correct them. God's going to do something about it. His two sons died. The Ark of the Covenant is taken away. 
one of the wives of the sons is going to have a baby, and the baby comes, and his name is Ichabod. The glory has departed. So it, it, it was perfect timing in a sense of the glory of God, the Ark of the Covenant left, was taken by the Philistines, and the sons of Eli died, and Eli, when he heard the news, fell, broke his neck, and died too. It's like, wow, swift, swift judgment of the Lord, yes. But this is after years and years of not willing to correct his sons. But they, nobody cried about it. They just said, oh, well, you know, Ark is gone. The, the, the people of God weren't really, Samuel was being raised up to lead the people of God back to himself. But now this golden calf is gone and everybody's going to cry. But the play on words is this. This was the ritual. The calves were called Baal, which means my master. Baal was worshipped in, in, in sort of weird different ways, sexual immorality and all this stuff. But one of the ways that they was worshipped is that they believed Baal would die and would go into uh, literally like a, a grave or, or the underworld. And in the underworld, they would cry. Or it, while Baal was in the underworld, they would cry, oh, Baal died. And, and then around the spring, they would celebrate the fact that he came back to life. And they'd be very happy that he came back to life. Now, of course, that's right around the time of Passover and right around the time of resurrection. It's around April. So you see the correlations, how they saw Baal going down to the underworld, coming out and having a big joy, how Jesus goes into it. So it's not saying that Christians took that story from Baal. It's not saying that the resurrection is the same as that. It's showing you the contrast. The pagans celebrate this idea still to this day in Wicca and uh, um, has this idea of the, 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 the winter solstice and the spring equinox and all this stuff. Um, but they would weep and they would cry for Baal. Now God's going to say, you're going to weep, all right. <laughs> I'm going to take your calf away. So in their practice of worshiping Baal, God was going to literally make them cry because now it was going to expose that they really were after Baal, not after God. Now it's verse 6. The thing itself will be carried away to Assyria. It will be a tribute to the king. And this is what it will look like. King Jerob. Ephraim will be seized with shame, and Israel will be ashamed of his own counsel. Now, the counsel there was the fact that, um, so it's interesting, this, this calf, this golden, this golden calf, we'll talk about the, the bull in a minute. This golden calf idea um, goes back to the beginning, goes back to uh, Egypt, coming out of Egypt. And they've always worshipped the golden calf that way. Now, in, in paganism, uh, which this is basically what it is. And practices like this, there's always a sexual aspect to it, even in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we're told in Revelation that Jesus corrected the church, and he told the church that they had followed the teachings of Balaam, they had followed Jezebel's, the ideas of Jezebel and Balaam, and they had taught their servants to commit sexual immorality and idolatry, which are always kind of connected together. So every time... There, there was this pagan worship of these gods. There was always an immoral aspect to it. There was always a sexual component to it. That's still to this day. Even in uh, Satanism and things like that, that is the form to worship in those places, still to this day. And, um, of course, it's, it's the aspect of the flesh, and, of course, people get into it because it's, it, it indulges their, their sinfulness. Um, 
But the calf is really interesting. This golden calf goes back to not just Egypt, but it goes before Egypt um, to a man named Nimrod and the worship of these golden calves. There's always this calf or bull idea where people worship the bull as a sign of fertility, a sign of fertility and prosperity. So you want to be fertile, you want to be prosperous, you worship the bull. Um, it's, um, it's interesting that uh, there is a bull... Where is that exactly at? Is it in New York? The stock market. Yeah, that's where it is. Yeah, because uh, it's got some notoriety. Now, somebody put a little girl in front of the, you know, challenging the bull. It's just weird social justice stuff. But anyway, the idea of the bull, right? The idea, you know, we call it the bull market, right? Uh, it's the idea of prosperity. It, it's nothing new. It's always been around uh, that it was always prosperity. It was always fertility, right? And the, the Jews were right into it. Were, were following headlong into it. Now, Verse 7, Samaria will be cut off with her king like a stick on the surface of the water. So the kings didn't last, so much so that the king was like a stick on the surface of the water, uh, the, 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 the Israel king. And if you ever put a stick in a current, you were a little kid, I don't know if you ever did that. I did that as a kid, and you have these races, and you put a little stick down the current, and you see how fast it goes, or you make a little boat out of paper. You know, That's what I used to do. And... Um, it has no control. It basically saying it has no control. The stick is on the water, and you don't know where it's going to go. And that's what the kings were like. Also, the high places of Aven, this is the same place, Bethel, the sins of Israel will be destroyed. Thorns and thistles will grow on the altar. They will, all, they will say to the mountains, cover, covers us, cover us, and to the hills fall on us. Um, and this was the... The punishment. This was their punishment. Israel is going to say, cover us until the hills fall on us. So the watchman was supposed to be the ones warning them. But they didn't have watchmen. They have yes men. And they didn't really care for the people. And they were just indulging their own sin. And they're going to be destroyed. The altars are going to be destroyed. Everything that they cared about, about worshiping Baal and the calves were going to be destroyed. And look at this interesting. And... In verse 8, cover us and turn into the hills, fall on us. Turn to Revelation chapter 6, because this is exactly quoted in the, in the New Testament twice. But we're going to go to the other passage. I'll tell you what the other one is. But in Revelation chapter 6, we see this, uh, this picture that comes from Hosea. And in Revelation chapter 6. Verse 16, thank you. After the sixth seal, so this is after the sixth seal, before the seventh seal. Uh, verse 15 says, The kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave, and every free man, hid themselves in the caves, among the rocks, among, in the mountains, and they will say to the mountains, unto the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So after six seals have gone through, there's a tremendous... The, the six seal is really uh, amazing because the sun turns into darkness, the moon turns into blood. We're told by Joel, the prophet Joel, that that is the beginning of the wrath of God. Okay? The beginning of the wrath of God. The beginning of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will not come until the sun turns into uh, darkness and the moon turns into blood. 
That's what Joel says. That's what Revelation says. That's what Jesus said, Matthew 24. When you see this, the wrath of God is coming. And you can see it right there because it says, look, hide us. This is the wrath of the Lamb has come. It's, it's about to start when you see that. And um, uh, I believe that's the point where you see in Revelation chapter 7, right after that, you see people in heaven. People in heaven that have been taken out of the great tribulation, right after that. Um, what does that sound like? God just removed his people from the wrath. Exactly what it means. Yeah, you, look, you don't have to read a book to tell you what it means. You can just read it. Uh, and it literally says that God will remove his people from wrath. Right out of Joel, Joel says the day of the, the, day of the Lord cannot come until that happens. The sun turns into darkness and the moon turns into blood. All these cosmic disturbances, great pause, right? People freaking out because it's, it's over. Their party's over. Sin has run its course. Jesus is about to come. The wrath of the Lamb is about to come, and people are crying to the mountains. Anything but that. Fall on us, we just don't want to go through it. And um, Revelation 7 tells us that uh, 144,000 are sealed, and then there's a, a numerous people in heaven redeemed uh, out of the great tribulation, come out of the great tribulation, redeemed from every tribe, tongue, nation. And I love that because it says, men for God. God has picked for himself men for God. That's why we love our man's fellowship. That's what it is. Men for God. Men for God. We need men for God. We need men for God. He's going he's gonna to pick them up eventually when he comes. But we need men for God now. And, but anyway, that's the ultimate picture. It comes from Hosea. Now, this is, don't fall asleep now. Exercise your mind here. The judgment on Israel is connected to the judgment in Revelation. The other part, the other verse that quotes this from Hosea, it's in Luke chapter 23. Jesus is going to Calvary, and he's carrying the cross, and he speaks to these women on the side of the road. It's an interesting story. And they're weeping for him. And what does he tell them? Don't weep for me. <laughs> Don't weep for me. Weep for yourself. It's coming. Judgment on Israel is coming. It says, they'll say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, hide us. And what Jesus was talking about to that generation was 70 AD. The judgment on Jerusalem, on Israel, was coming in 70 AD. This, in Hosea, was the judgment on Israel, the northern kingdoms. It's letting you know all the judgments in the Old Testament are pictures of the ultimate judgment. The judgment on Israel, the judgment on Judah, so the, the fall of, of Jerusalem, the fall of Samaria, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, are teaching tools to tell us what it will be like in the last days. Not just in Israel, but the whole world will say that. The whole world is going to try to hide from the wrath of God. Amazing, isn't it? It comes right out of Hosea. The people there are going to endure a judgment because Assyria was coming, and they were in love with power. They were in love with power, and they tried to make all these deals with Syria and Assyria and, um, and Egypt, and they wouldn't work. 
For the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they stand. Will not the battle against the sons of iniquity overtake them in Gibeah? We talked about Gibeah the other day. I'm not going to get into it, but read Judges chapter 19 and 21, but not to your kids. Unless you really want them to know. And uh, it's frightening, the people of God and what they did. Homosexuality, immorality, murder, genocide, because they had no king. And God says, you're just like Gibeah. You're just like the people in Gibeah. Read it, read it all for yourself. I've talked about it enough times. that it's, uh, um, I have nightmares about it. But it is, um, it is, it's incredible. You go, why is this chapter in the Bible? It is trying to tell us this is far the people of God can go when they're not ruled by God, when not being controlled by the Holy Spirit. It is my desire, and I will chastise them, says the Lord. The people will gather against them, and they're bound for their double guilt. The double guilt. Okay, uh, the word there in Hebrew is hardening. They had a double hardening of their hearts. A double hardening. What was their double hardening? Well, what was their double sin? One, they trusted in military power. They said to Assyria, protect us. They said to Egypt, protect us. God says, woe to those who go down to Egypt. They will not protect you. Because ultimately, it is God who's going to chastise them. And if God is going to chastise them, there's nobody that can help them. In fact, God will judge Assyria later. We're going to read that in the book of Nahum later on. And secondly, it was idolatry and the corruption of worship. And they thought that they just, you know, it doesn't matter how I live. As long as I, I, I still involved in the practice, you know, kind of worshiping God, kind of like my way. You ever heard people say that? I'm just kind of following God my way. You know, I'm just kind of doing my own thing. I'm just doing me, and I'm just going to do that. And when you hear that, run! <laughs> that person has become deceived, self-deceived. Now, it says in John, in 1 John, that if a person says that they have fellowship with God, but they walk in darkness, they deceive themselves, and the truth is not in them. The word of God is not in them. If you lie to someone, at least somebody knows the truth. You. You deceive them, but you lied. At least somebody knows the truth. I'm not saying it's good, but at least somebody knows. But when you don't even know the truth, when you deceive yourself, who's going to tell you? Who's going to convince you that that's not right? That's the danger of walking in darkness. You don't know. You don't know that you're walking in darkness. You, you, you think that it's a bright sunshine out there. And, and, and yet, the only barometer is to gauge your life according to the word of God. Am I walking in darkness? Ah, oh, don't say that. How judgmental you are. Everything's fine. I'm just kind of doing my own thing. I'm just doing my way. I'm just worshiping God, my thing. You know, it's, it's mine. My personal relationship with God, right? Personal. By the way, personal does not mean that at all. <laughs> personal means that he's your personal savior. That's what it means. That if you were the only person who ever sinned, you're not. But if you were, God, Jesus, would have come down to the cross, died, suffered the same punishment just for you. That's what it means, personal. He would have done it just for you. It doesn't mean it's this private thing that you got in the back room. It's public. It needs to be public. Otherwise, it's not light. Light is not supposed to be in darkness. It's not supposed to be shunned. It's not supposed to be hidden. I digress. Let's continue. Verse 11. Ephraim is trained like a heifer that loves to thresh. 
Oh, did I tell you about Gibeon? Oh, man. Oh, okay, quick. Um, Gibeon. The place where Saul was um, um, anointed as king. You go to this day, uh, it's right there, near Rama. You can go there. Uh, guess what they found? Because they've done a lot of archaeological findings in Gibeah. They found fortresses, military weapons, ready for fighting, ready for, uh, uh, basically, for their protection. Double walls, all kinds of just like, whoever was here was really insecure about their lives, and uh, they were really concerned that someone's going to get them. Well, Saul and the people, even after that, they consider Gibeah like a fortress, like a place of, like, this is going to be our last stand. No one's going to be able to take us out, right? And you've got, like, your armory or things like that. This is it. You know, this is our stronghold. Uh, they found them. They, they, you can go there. They've done a lot of archaeological evidence, and it's like, oh, yeah, somebody was really preparing for something here. And you know what? It didn't matter. They got wiped out. Because some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. So Saul becomes this, typic, this, this type of somebody who didn't trust God, somebody who knew God, who was anointed by God, but somebody who got further and further away from God and disobeyed God consistently and constantly. And eventually all his preparations and, and going and, and trying to fight the, his own, in his own strength in battle didn't, didn't really do anything. So anyway, now we've got verse 11. Uh, the heifer. Uh, Ephraim is like a trained heifer. Now, this is Ephraim is like northern Israel, the northern kingdom. I will come over her fair with uh, her fair neck with a yoke, and I will harness Ephraim. So imagine a heifer that is just it's so free to graze and eat and do whatever she wants. She can lay down, she can eat. That was like Israel. But God says, I'm going to put a yoke on her. A yoke of slavery is coming. They're going to be taken to Assyria. Judah will plow, Jacob will horror for himself. So in the meantime, the southern kingdom, Judah, is going to be able to live freely for a time. But the northern kingdom is going to go away. God's very specific. Ephraim, you're going to get a yoke. Judah and Jacob, you guys will stay for a while. Eventually they did fall. So with the view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. And this is where we're trying to get. To. I've been racing to get to this verse, and it's right at the end. Break up your fallow ground. Again, a agricultural type visualization, a visual of what people were thinking at the time. They needed to think like in the agriculture, heifers, vines, right? God's speaking to them in what they knew. And you, you, you think about that, and you go, what does that have to do with me? Well, Jesus said when he planted the seed, he, the Son of Man goes out and he plants the seed and he puts it in the soil. And the seed is the same. The seed is the word of God. It goes out and it'll do something. What is, when Jesus told that parable, what was the difference? What changed? Not the seed. What was different every time? The soil. That's right. The four types of soil. God says to Israel, break it up. That hardness of heart, that double hardening, needs to be soft. See, the one thing that we can, we can have whenever we hear the word of God is to have a soft heart, to pray to the Lord, Lord, give me that soft heart, give me that fertile heart, that heart that will take on the seed, and the seed will grow and give fruit. And give, give fruit. 
that heart and heart, that heart and soil, the Bible says Satan comes and takes it. The birds of the air, they eat it, remember that? And Jesus said, that's Satan, come in and take the seed. You won't be able to hear God's word because your heart is hardened against God. And it says, so with the view to righteousness. This is an appeal by God. Say, look, so to righteousness. So with the desire to have righteousness in your life. Now, this is, again, pictures of the New Testament teaching. The New Testament says you can reap and sow certain things. And if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption and death. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap what? No, if you sow to the Spirit, righteousness, righteousness life, right? It would be good. It would be something that uh, it would actually contribute to your walk with the Lord. But if you sow to the flesh, it will actually destroy you. And God appeals to the people and says, look, do something about your life now. When the judgment of God is about to come, there's only one thing to do. There's only one thing you can do. It is time to seek the Lord. There is nothing else, nothing else, there's nothing else more important at that point. When the judgment of God is coming, it's not time to do anything else but to seek the Lord. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11, very beautiful passage, where it says, God, in order to please God, you must have, what is it? Faith. Faith and faithfulness. You need to have that in order to please God because without faith, it is impossible to please Him because one who seeks God, right, one who seeks the Lord, must approach Him in a way that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That is the New Testament correlation to Hosea. You must seek the Lord. You must seek him. Well, he's near, Isaiah says. So all these ideas of seeking the Lord is drawing close to him. It's getting close. But what needed to change for Israel was the hardening of their hearts needed to break it up. And if they do that, look at the end of verse 12, until he comes to rain righteousness upon you. What's going to happen to you if you do that? If you don't harden your heart against the Lord, if you reap to righteousness and to loving kindness, right? The loving kindness is the grace of God. It's the kindness of God. What's going to happen if you do that? God will do one thing. He will rain on you righteousness. Rain on you righteousness. It's a beautiful picture of God's Spirit. Always a picture of God's Spirit or God's Word that comes down like the rain. God's Word and God's Spirit, uh, in a very real way, are, are, are tied together, right? That's why we don't separate the two. Okay, Christians don't ever separate the, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. They are intertwined together. He's not only the author, but it's also the sort of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? Always together, the Word and the Spirit. Unfortunately, in our church world, we've separated the two. We have people that are con so concerned with the Holy Spirit that they don't read the Bible. And some people that are so concerned with reading the Bible and, and studying it without the Spirit. And they leave the Spirit out and you go, man, when you just get the two together and just look, it's a, it's, you can't separate it. It's the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God. 
coming down on you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. You have trusted in your ways and in your warriors. You know what happened to them? Assyria came like a bird. The Bible says he comes like a prey, like a predator upon the prey. This, this big old bird coming down from Assyria to destroy them. And it happened because they trusted in their warriors. Therefore, a tumult will arise among your people and all the fortresses will be destroyed. Shalman will destroy Beth Arbel in the day of battle. Now, uh, this is one of those things where you go, what is that? Um, Shaman, um, we don't know who he is. Most likely, he's a Syrian king. Could have been Shalmaneser. We don't know. Uh, one of the generals for uh, uh, the kings of Assyria was called Salmani, which is, it would have been pronounced Shalmani, which could have been him. We don't know. And Beth Arbel, more, people think, more than likely, people think it's a, it was a city near the Sea of Galilee, but we don't know. We just don't know. The people in Hosea's time knew, because he obviously is talking about it. We just don't know where this place was located at this point. Maybe they'll find it, maybe they won't, but we know that eventually the whole kingdom of Israel was destroyed. When mothers were dashed in pieces and their children, this is something uh, so horrific, and you saw that in the Holocaust. You saw that in uh, the 70 AD, but you definitely saw that with the Assyrians uh, killing the Jewish people, babies. And you see it today more than anything with terrorists, ISIS and Hezbollah, and these, these, uh, um, these terrorist groups going into uh, neighborhoods and places like that and, and killing kids and killing moms. It, it, was, it was just like that at the time of Israel. Thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. Judgment was coming. And when judgment comes, because of the golden calves and the failures of the king, remember the kings were supposed to be the leaders, the leaders of the people of God. You would have called them today the pastors, the elders, the, the people that lead the people of God into worship. They were doing this. They were doing this. And it is time to just seek the Lord. And they didn't obey the Lord. They didn't obey the things of the Lord. They didn't obey the things of the Spirit. And when judgment is about to come, there's only one thing to do is to seek Him. And don't think for a moment that the Christian church is immune to this. In Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, Jesus, with the exception of two churches, all the other ones, were told they needed to do something about it now. Otherwise, the judgment was going to come. Laodicea, unfortunately, was the one who said, I have need of nothing. They were wealthy, prosperous, and this so much reminds me of the church in America. I have no need for nothing. They had no need for Jesus. They had everything. I mean, what do you need Jesus for if you have it all? There's never a time when we don't need the Lord. You will never outgrow a need for Jesus in your walk with the Lord. I don't care if you're 30 years in the Lord, 50 years in the Lord, 60 years in the Lord. You will never outgrow the need for daily fellowship with Jesus. Daily. As a new believer, you go, man, how can I live without him? But you know, I'm going to just sit. Just a fair warning. If you guys are older believers, you know what I mean. You can get to a point in your walk that you get really comfortable because you've been around the block a few times. You kind of know the hospital a little bit well and... You know, you don't need to be on a gurney all the time. You can kind of help other patients around. And you get to the point when you forget 
that you were once in a gurney, that you were once in a hospital bed, that you were once broken people that needed the Lord. And it's good to be reminded of that because we'll never outgrow our need for the Lord. When we do, it's trouble. But we need to cultivate our lives with righteousness. We need to cultivate our lives that it will produce fruit worthy of the Lord. And, it's t- and when you seek the Lord, it's not just a few prayers go up and down. You know, that's when I prayed. Um, but it's to pray until what happens? Until he rains righteousness upon you. Until he rains righteousness upon you. Terrible judgment, but you know what? There was hope. If anybody opens that door, Jesus said to Laodicea, I will come in and have fellowship with them. He told that to a church. It wasn't to unbelievers, but people of God who knew if they opened that door, he will come in and have fellowship with them. If anybody in Israel would have sought the Lord, they would have escaped that judgment. And so the good news of the New Testament is that every one of us, any one of us, can seek the Lord today. And the reign of righteousness of Jesus, through his spirit and by his word, will come upon you. And you'll have a freshness that cannot be given by anybody except himself. So it is time to seek the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. May your spirit, Lord, bring the reality of these words into practice. Lord, we can learn a lot from history. We can read what happened. We can read what Paul said. It's, it's written for us so that we will know. But Lord, we can learn so much, but we never can put it into practice, and that is very dangerous. Lord, teach us how to put these things in action in our lives. Help us to have hope, Lord, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the return of Jesus. In our world that is um, gone mad, we can have hope, we can have a refuge, we can have righteousness, we can sow to the Spirit, we can have life, we can have true life, we can have kindness and the love of God in us through your Holy Spirit. Please, Lord. Rain down upon us righteousness, your word, your spirit. We're open, Lord, to what you want to do. And break up that hardened heart, Lord. Break up that hardened ground that has been coming along because of lack of fellowship or, or being in the world so much. Lord, I, I ask you, Lord, for those who have a hardened heart today, that you would break up the hollow ground, the fallow ground, that the heart, that the hearts and soil will be fertile for your word to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>